Good afternoon, members of the Cabinet, ladies and gentlemen. I'm pleased to welcome you to our historic town of Renfrew today. I'm delighted that the Scottish Cabinet is here today to meet members of our communities and to hear their concerns and aspirations for the future. Renfrewshire is a mix of rural and urban areas with specific needs and hard-working people who want the best for their local areas. Renfrewshire is not unique. We have to address key issues as we proceed into our new administration. We find ourselves in difficult economic times and faced with tough decisions, while local government is working to deliver the services that our local communities need and deserve. We have to ensure that all levels of government are communicating with people in an effective way, listening to what our communities are telling us and making decisions within that context. We hope that you, the Scottish Cabinet, will listen to us today. In Renfrewshire, our communities are at the heart of the decisions which our Council is taking and we will continue to enhance our engagement with our communities into the future. We want to regenerate our towns and villages. We want to equip our people with the infrastructure and skills which will allow them to develop. As a new authority, we appointed a new convener of employment and economic task force to coordinate an integrated approach to boost employ employability and economic growth. Due to the tight financial settlement for local government, we are forced to make many very challenging decisions. We are fully engaged with our partners and are constantly striving to improve our already high standards of service. The government has to work with us on ways which allow us to continue to deliver levels of service which our communities expect and require. I hope that the Cabinet today will listen to the voice of our residents who have first-hand experience of how Scottish communities are developing, of the difficulties that they face and how they are engaging and participating in these difficult times. As I welcome the Scottish Cabinet to Renfrewshire today, I wish you a successful and informative meeting and I particularly look forward to hearing the impact today's meeting has on your approach as you move forward. Renfrewshire Council is committed to working with you in a constructive manner to achieve the best outcomes for the people of Renfrewshire. Can I... Can I introduce you to Derek Mackay, who will be your MSP, your, who is your MSP, but who will be your MC for the day. Thank you very much, Provost, for that warm welcome of the Scottish Government to here in Renfrew. Of course, I'm delighted that the Scottish Government's Cabinet has come to my hometown and my home county of Renfrew and Renfrewshire. I'm here as the constituency MSP for Renfrewshire North and West, and of course as part of the Scottish Government as the Minister for Local Government eh, and Planning. And it's quite historic that we meet in Renfrew today. The Scottish Government's been getting out and about to, to Skye and will go to Orkney, and I'm delighted that it's here in Renfrew. Of course, the Cabinet's normally held in uh, Butte House in Edinburgh, the First Minister's uh, residence, so I now have something in common with the First Minister, that we can both walk to the Scottish Cabinet. I live so close uh, to the Town Hall. But I'd like to introduce you to the uh, Government Ministers who have joined us uh, this afternoon. Of course, we have uh, Fiona Hislop in terms of uh, external relations and culture, and 
John Swinney for Finance, Sustainable Growth and Employment, the Deputy First Minister uh, Nicola Sturgeon, Mike Russell in Education and Lifelong Learning, and Richard Lockhead to the far end on, on Environment. Uh, then we have Kenny McCaskill for, for Justice Matters, Keith Brown for Housing and Transport, and last but not least, Angela Constance on the uh, issue in the Ministerial Portfolio of Youth Employment. So please welcome the Cabinet of Scotland. Now, we will have a question and answer session. There will be roving mics that can take questions, and I'll group them in batches of three. But of course, uh, the, we are delighted to be joined by the head of the Scottish Government, who will address you now. Please welcome the First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Derek, thank you for that introduction, and, and thanks also to uh, uh, Councillor Anne Hall, the, the Provost of Renfrew, uh, for your, your welcome to, to us here the, uh, this afternoon. Uh, uh, firstly, it's fantastic to, to be in a, a venue uh, such as this. I've been doing a bit of research, and uh, I know that the Town Hall was reopened uh, in January by the Deputy First Minister uh, after a, a £5 million refurbishment, and after what I've seen uh, around this amazing building. I think it was money well spent. And uh, I was checking as to who the acts were that day. It was Gamu uh, and the singing kettle. Now, whether or not the Scottish uh, Cabinet can supply that level of entertainment uh, this afternoon, uh, we'll just have to, to, to wait and see. But we are delighted to, to be here. And the, the, the purpose, well, two things. The purpose of, uh, of taking the, the Cabinet around Scotland, uh, and we're, we're in Sky a few weeks ago. We go to Orkney next week, the Orkney Islands. Uh, here in Renfrew today, is of course uh, to, to demonstrate that the, the Scottish Parliament is not a parliament for Edinburgh, it's a parliament for Scotland. Uh, the Scottish Government is not a government for Edinburgh, it's a, it's a government for Scotland. And we always find that the, <clears throat> the meetings in particular that are held, as are held in every cabinet meeting, are incredibly well attended and, and people take the, the full opportunity to, to get their views across, indeed, as it should be. And secondly, you may <clears throat> wonder why we bring the, the full array of uh, of cabinet ministers who have just been introduced to you by uh, uh, Derek. Well, the, the explanation for that, ladies and gentlemen, is, is very easy indeed. You see, there will be a range of questions uh, from yourselves over the, the next hour and a half or so. Uh, and if they're really difficult questions, then I farm them out to uh, the cabinet ministers you see before you. If they're easy questions, of course, then I take the responsibility myself to, to, to answer them directly. So th this gives us the full range of folk that I can uh, I can ask to, to, to give you the, the, the specific answers. I, I want to say a couple of things, just an introduction. Firstly, I want to say a word because I, I've just come from, uh, I've just come from uh, Westway, the, the old Babcock uh, facility, and uh, uh, something which I think is just so enormously important that, uh, that you know, every single person in this hall, I think every single person in Scotland should be immensely proud of. Uh, and that is that uh, one of the companies who are, who are leading the, what I believe will become the new industrial revolution in Scotland is located there, and that's Steel Engineering, a, co a company which has been around these parts, I think, for 90 years. Uh, indeed, uh, they've got the, the first female modern apprentice in engineering, uh, who I met today, Nicole Mitchell, who's incidentally more than holding her own uh, with, with, with the lads. But a, a, a traditional engineering company in Scotland, which is now in the van, of the renewable revolution of this country. And the, the three things, three separate things, 
that we announced in one day today, all of which are hugely important. Uh, the first of these was uh, a, a company called uh, Nova Innovation, a company based in Leith. They've developed a, a new uh, tidal turbine machine. Uh, it's going to be the world's first community-owned tidal machine that's going to be deployed in North Yell and the, the Shetland Islands to give the community uh, both renewable and much cheaper electricity, which is going to transformational for that, uh, for that island community. And that's going to be produced here uh, in Renfrew by, uh, by uh, steel engineering. Uh, so the idea of you know, the, a new tidal device, a new design, <coughs> designed in Scotland by a Scottish company, and then fabricated, engineered here in Renfrew, and then sailed up the cart into the Clyde and all the way up to the, the, the very utmost tip of Scotland uh, to transform the economic prospects in North Yale. I, I think that's just a fabulous thing uh, to be announced today. And incidentally, if you, and I'm sure Steel Engineer will be very happy to, to organize uh, a tour and visiting parties. Uh, that these, are, these are substantially sized machines. Let me tell you, these are just the, the start, but these are, are big machines. And that's just as well, because uh, we opened today the new G2 facility. That's one of the, the great uh, sheds that were operated uh, by Babcock, been lying unused for, for a number of years. 70,000 square feet of space includes Scotland's only 500 tonne capacity crane. It can lift just about anything. It's one of the biggest crane lifts in Europe. And that shed now brought back into to fabrication uh, and engineering. Uh, and the machines that are produced there will then, as the, the river cart has been dredged as part of the, the revitalization of the, the quayside, bringing back that freeport into operation. Uh, these great machines will be sailed by barge uh, down the river cart into the Clyde and then deployed uh, in the waters uh, around Scotland. Uh, and thirdly, and again, just today, the official opening of the new Energy Skills Training Academy, because you can have as many facilities, you can have as many resources as you like, but you've got to have the people with the skills if you're going to get the, the benefit from these resources. And that new Skills Academy, which is very similar to the, the one I opened uh, late last year in NIG in the, in the Murray Firth, which has been so spectacularly successful, but that new academy here in Renfrew will provide training for 60 modern apprentice in its first year. And they've had 230 applications already for these jobs. And I, I spoke to the first 10 trainees, newly uh, installed in the, in the training academy and getting on with the, and getting on with the job. And the, the quality and caliber of these young people is such that uh, I'm sure they'll go on to, to, to great success. So there we have it, the, uh, the potential that Scotland has uh, in the waters uh, uh, around our country of marine resources which can power not just uh, Scotland and electricity uh, needs in the future, but power a, a large part of the, the European continent. The development of the engineering devices which will allow that power to be mobilized. You know, we have more applied that's actually producing electricity in the waters, wave and tidal devices in Scotland now, than the rest of the world put together. <laughs> so we lead this technology and developed and engineered here in Scotland and then exported to the rest of the planet. But in particular, this is why I think folk here in Renfrew should be particularly proud of this, that this area, this part of Scotland, was at the, the heartbeat of the marine engineering which Scotland dominated in the 19th century. Now, I'm looking around the hall, there's nobody old enough here to remember it personally, but as a, an inheritance, as an engineering inheritance and knowledge this was the, the part of Scotland which uh, produced uh, the greater part of the, the world's marine engineering in the, in the 19th century. The River Cart brought back into it to operation. I believe that this part of Scotland 
can lead the way in the marine engineering of the 21st century, building these great new machines which are going to contribute a large part of the electricity production of the European continent and do so in a way which is clean, green and sustainable. Uh, after doing that today, I was interviewed by the BBC and the first question they asked was not, isn't it fantastic to have this new training academy see these youngsters get a chance to rediscover the welding and engineering skills of the of their forebears, wasn't, isn't it fantastic to have a Scottish design new tidal device which won't just be applied here but, but around the planet? Or isn't it fantastic to see the G2 brought back into operation, getting back into its heyday as one of the great capacity fabrication shops in the European continent? No, their first question was, was that electricity price rise yesterday no connected with these renewables? <laughs> Well, actually, the electricity price, price rise announced yesterday was connected with the price of gas. That was the explanation that was given. And as we look forward to the future, uh, then it's not just the engineering of this, not just the saving the planet, it's also having a form of energy which is not going to be subject to the escalation of prices as hydrocarbons uh, undoubtedly are. Now, some of that escalation of prices in Scotland will do us a bit of good, incidentally, if we control the resources and the revenues uh, from the oil and gas, but we want, as consumers, as people, to be insulated uh, from uh, commodities which can increase their price. So that is a fantastic story in this community, along with the community in, uh, in Leaf, uh, in Methyl, in, uh, in the Macrahanish, in, uh, in the Mullican Tyre, in Dundee, in Nig, in the Pentland Firth, in the Orkney Waters, are all communities which are now taking part. And people say, where are the jobs? in these renewables. Well, if anybody says, where are the jobs, the renewables, you see, they're here in Renfrew, where the machines are going to be made that are going to power the future. So I think it's an absolute fantastic story, and it's about a story about industrial recovery. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had some pretty decent uh, jobs figures over the last uh, six months in Scotland. Uh, we have some substantial achievements in reversing uh, and are arresting that tide of uh, youth unemployment, which uh, uh, was of enormous concern uh, to every single person uh, in this country. We now have a situation where uh, we have 56% of our youngsters employed in employment, uh, in addition to a record number of students at university and college in Scotland, in sharp contrast, incidentally, to what's happening elsewhere in these islands, where there's a 25,000 decline this year in the university intake in England, 25,000 decline. And this year, Scotland will have a record number of folk going to college and university. And we're starting to arrest that tide of youth uh, uh, unemployment. But you know, there is absolutely no room for complacency in the economy. What we desperately, badly, absolutely need in this, and as common to, to this community as every community in Scotland, what we need is capital investment in the economy now. The UK economy has been going downwards for the last three quarters. The Scottish economy, not as bad, but nonetheless, we're at best stagnant. Our production sector's been doing well, our manufacturing sector's been doing well, even the service sector's been doing not bad, but our construction sector's been blown to bits. And the reason our construction sector's blown to bits is because of the lack of capital investment. I saw uh, Alistair Darling uh, <clears throat> the other day criticise the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And I thought, well, that's good, actually, because it was Alistair Darling's plans that the current chance of the Exchequer is working to at the present moment. Remember, Alistair, a couple of years ago, said that we had to have cuts which were tougher and deeper than those of Margaret Thatcher. That's what he said during the election campaign. 
uh, which maybe indicates why they lost the election campaign, incidentally, but that's, uh, that's what the man said. But ever, <clears throat> after two years, he's realised that wasn't the way to go forward. Uh, so the guy who put in place the plans two years ago, which George Osborne has been taking forward faithfully, every time I write to George Osborne about the decline in capital spending, I'm talking about direct government capital spending in the economy, which is about a third in real terms. That's what's been hived off the Scottish budget corresponding to the budgets that are being set south of the border. He says, yes, but they, we've increased it from the plans we inherited. In other words, it was to be a 38% decline, and now it's a 33% decline. So given that, and given the amount of projects that are needing done around Scotland, uh, why don't we just apply the need for capital spending to the work that needs to be done and provide something to give some more impetus to the economic recovery we all want to see. Now, as uh, Scotland's Finance Minister, John Swinney, identified £300 million, and that's quite a modest sum of projects which were ready and able to be deployed in this financial year. And the reason for doing that was I had a meeting with uh, the Prime Minister in February, and I was making exactly the same case that I've just made to you now. Isn't it time to move, you know, put the, the pedal down on capital spending to get it back to a decent level to make sure the construction sector doesn't drag us into recession, but instead becomes an engine of recovery. And the Prime Minister said, oh yes, we're looking at that. He said, the problem is, of course, that if he did that, it wouldn't happen this year or next year. It'd be two, three, four, five years down the line. Incidentally, that'd be better than nothing, incidentally, but nonetheless, I said, no, no. I said, look, we can do in Scotland now, we've got shovel-ready projects, things that are absolutely needing to be done right now that we can get done, and if I send you a list of these, will you consider them? And they said, yes, I'll consider them. So I sent them a list, 30 projects around Scotland, 300 million pounds worth, uh, an answer came there, none. Things that we could actually do now. We're not the only country which are facing these issues, but we're the only country which is facing these issues and refusing to do anything about it. Uh, a year or so ago, I was in, or uh, well, two years ago, I was in a United States of America, when uh, President Obama <coughs> was launching his shovel-ready program. And I was on Fox News, uh, which is a television station, as you may understand, which is not entirely supportive of the President of the United States. Uh, so there I was in Fox News, and I was in Washington, and the Fox News presenter was in New York, and they were unveiling the President's initiative of shovel-ready projects. And they had a succession of Republican governors. Uh, who were saying that this was dreadful, this was communism, this was outrageous, this was a White uh, House uh, attempt to dictate to the states, and their state would certainly not be taking part in this multi-billion pound shovel-ready initiative. So they went through that, and then they came to me in, uh, in Washington. So the Fox News presenter said, now we have the First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond, in our Washington studio. Before we talk about Scotland, Mr. Salmond, do you have a view on the President's shovel-ready programme? So I said, well, I've just been listening to all these governors saying they don't want any of that shovel-ready money. And I'd just like to say that Scotland is willing. <laughs> no, if, you, if, you, if you're stuck, if you're stuck for somebody to employ these projects, we're putting ourselves forward. We're volunteering. <laughs> we'll help you out. Uh, incidentally, the, the, the sense of irony was entirely lost on the false presenter. <laughs> but the, the point is valid nonetheless. I've never known an economic recovery in history which has not been led by the construction sector. The capital investment is a thing and sign of returning confidence to the economy. And you cannot return confidence to the economy by definition unless you see that sector starting to move forward. 
what's this got to do with us here today? Well, what's got to do with that? You know, I'm prepared to articulate that case. I'm prepared to argue for that case. I'll argue until the cows come home till I'm blue in the face. I'll argue it to the Prime Minister, to the Chancellor, to anybody who's prepared to listen. I know it's right. I know it's the right thing to do right now. The overwhelming body of opinion, incidentally, now is transferred. Even people who were supporting the level of consolidation a couple of years ago, they had 30 economists lined up, 29 of them have changed their minds, are now saying it's time to do that. And therefore, I'll lobby and argue for that position. But wouldn't it be a lot better, ladies and gentlemen, if we could just take that decision? <laughs> if we could just say, let's get on with it. <laughs> If I introduced, if John Swinney introduced into the Scottish Parliament at the present moment a programme of capital spending around Scotland to get the construction sector moving, to build the houses, the roads, the bridges that we need to renovate and to do repairs, incidentally, which is a, a great thing to do because it's, you know, it's labour-intensive as well as capital-intensive, uh, then I doubt if there would be a single voice raised in opposition in that entire Parliament. Right across the parties, I don't think anybody would say boo to such a proposal. But we find ourselves as a country in a position where despite the range of powers and improvements and I think enhancing things the Scottish Parliament can do, that when it comes to a key economic decision that we are stuck within a fixed budget. Even more stuck incidentally than a council in Scotland because a council in Scotland has borrowing powers, albeit limited, albeit prudential, but has some borrowing powers. The Scottish Government has no borrowing powers. We have a fixed budget set by Westminster, which we can only change at the very margins. I think that provides an illustration <clears throat> of why we need independence in this country, why we need real economic control, so we have the ability to take decisions for ourselves. We won't get all these decisions right, of course. We'll make mistakes, absolutely, of course. But when we get an overwhelming, spellbinding, obvious decision on the economy that we should make now, we'll be able to just get on with the job instead of hoping that George Osborne will change the habits of a lifetime and realise there is a common sense to the idea that at this particular moment, at this particular cycle in the economy, at this point of trying to recover from the deepest recession since the 1930s, there actually is an importance in public sector capital investment of getting the things that need done to get the people back to work. Many other arguments uh, I could make for Scottish independence, but I thought I'd offer you that. In terms of what Scotland can do with the economy, well, I'd like people to think about uh, what we're trying to do with the renewable sector, what it's going to mean to, to this country, what it's going to mean to reviving the, the skills of this country and what the future holds in terms of what we can deploy here and what we can deploy internationally. But there is no substitute in any of these things. And incidentally, if we hadn't controlled aspects of renewables, do you think any of this would have been done <laughs> in LEAF or in... Uh, in Renfrew or in Dundee or in Methil or in would it we be done somewhere else uh, entirely? So the aspect of this country, this government, this parliament, this people controlling our economic destiny seems to me overwhelming. Ladies and gentlemen, I look forward enormously to the, uh, the question and answer the session. I'm now going to return you to the uh, guidance, to the tender mercies of Mr. Derek Mackay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the event's very well attended. I propose to take questions in batches of three to get us through as many questions 
as we possibly can. Uh, thank you for your uh, attendance and enthusiasm to attend the event. So let's cover as much ground as we possibly can. If you can keep your questions fairly succinct, and ministers, if you can do the same, please, uh, we'll cover as many as we can. We've got about 50 minutes for questions. If you just raise your hand, we'll get a, a roving mic to you, and we'll cover as many as we can, about 50 minutes. Okay, sir, you were first. Yep. Could you hold the mic to your mouth, please, just so everyone can hear, and the event uh, has also Does been recorded. membership of NATO oblige member states to participate in every military operation NATO undertakes? Okay, I'll take a few more. Sir? Yes, my question is for, <coughs> for the First Minister. First of all, congratulations on the engineering community achievements that you've been making. They sound very exciting. Um, I just want to name a few names. Harry Adams, William Blythe, David Brodie, David Brown. These are four of 20 men who are named on a plaque in a Methodist church in Edinburgh who gave their lives for this nation in the First and Second World War, six of whom came from three families, which was obviously devastating. Um, Mr. Salmond, you'll be aware, I'm sure, that on the 2nd of June 1953, the uh, moderator of the Church of Scotland presented Her Majesty the Queen with the Bible as the most valuable thing on earth and was told that by it Christian princes rule um, and was told that this was wisdom. So my question for you, sir, is in view of our constitution being a, a Christian constitution and in view of these 20 men who gave their lives to keep this, free, this nation free from Nazism and the aspirations of the Kaiser. You said a moment ago, we will make mistakes, of course, when you, if you had independence. Well, I would like to suggest to you that redefining marriage is one of those mistakes. And my question to you, sir, is where does your mandate come from doing what is not right but is obviously wrong? Thank you. Okay, I'll take a third question here. And can I say it would be helpful if you're representing an organisation to see which organisation you're representing? Thank you. I only represent myself, but thank you for coming to Renfrewshire. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you all. Uh, I'd like to know what we are doing to reinstate the Scottish, Anglo-Scottish maritime boundary to its position as it was before 1999. Okay, thank you. First Minister. That's uh, a very interesting uh, point. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, just because not everybody will be as, as familiar with that as this, this gentleman is, uh, a very curious thing happened in the run-up to the 99 Scottish elections, you know, the first elections to the Scottish Parliament. And it was at a time where, for understandable reasons, uh, uh, not just myself, but myself and Donald Dewar and everybody, Jim Wallace, everybody who was contesting these elections basically was fully occupied in the contesting of these elections. Uh, they went through a, a, a committee in a, a single morning, in fact, without debate, hardly, at, uh, at Westminster, uh, a redrawing of the maritime boundary uh, between Scotland and England. Uh, it was effectively a unilateral redrawing, because, I mean, uh, there was no publicity about it, uh, there was no notice, I think and believe, if the Scottish politicians had been not campaigning in the Scottish elections, we probably would have... Uh, picked it up, but it was a very devious and underhand uh, thing to do. And what it did was it redefined uh, uh, 
the boundary, and it's certainly something which uh, we shall suggest uh, should be revisited. Uh, in terms of practical effect, it, it doesn't have a, an enormous practical effect in the sense that the, the maritime boundary doesn't have uh, uh, any great uh, fishing resources in that boundary. I, I represent the fishing constituency for 25 years. And, uh, and secondly, it has to be said that the, the very few oil fields in that part of the, the sea which is affected by the redrawing are, are fields like Argyle which are well past their, uh, uh, their, uh, their point of uh, great production. So you could argue that the the economic effect is quite uh, small, negligible in fact. But there is a point of principle. It was effectively a unilateral redrawing of the, the Scottish boundary. And certainly we'll ask to have that revisited. But I can tell you one thing, that uh, there'll be no unilateral <laughs> negotiations now that uh, both that we have a parliament established and if we carry forward a mandate uh, uh, to do these things. And maybe the greatest argument for having a parliament is to make sure that we things like that we're protected from in the, in the future. But it's a very interesting, very good point. Come to the, the second part, I'm going to ask Nicola Sturgeon to maybe to say a bit more that, than I'll say about, uh, about, about single-sex marriage. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe this is a, a, a simple matter in terms of saying the, there is one religious view in this matter. I mean, a number of denominations, for example, are in favour of, uh, of single-sex marriage, and they, their interpretation of, the, uh, of Scripture, of, uh, of the Bible, you might argue, they're entitled to that determination as well as other people are. So I don't think you can, uh, you can say this is a, a view which all religious people hold and, and, uh, uh, of one side of, of, this, of this particular debate. But you ask, a, in some senses, a more interesting point, which is about the, the mandate of, of the government. This is a matter which is going to go to a free vote in the Scottish Parliament, certainly as far as the SNP is concerned, and I suspect other parties as well. So it will be a matter which is determined by the conscience of individual members of the, the Scottish Parliament. It's not going to be determined by a diktat from a, a party whip. Uh, there does seem, in terms of the uh, views that have been put forward, a, a substantial number of people who vote for it. Incidentally, that may be the same in the Westminster Parliament uh, as well. But it will be a matter of conscience for individual parliamentarians. Uh, before the legislation comes to the Parliament, there's a the focused consultation so as we can avoid many of the, the fears that people have about, for example, the, the freedom of speech, the freedom of articulating, the freedom of practice and process of religion, which uh, you know, is undoubtedly a matter of, uh, of great importance. That, that issue will also uh, be fully dealt with in a, a separate constitutional period. I believe that we can entrench and make sure these rights are, are inviolate, as they should be. Uh, and if we can do that, and I believe we can, and we've suggested the one legislative change that we believe is necessary, this is a, a change to protect not just the right of churches to profess what they believe, but the right of individual celebrants, that's individual practitioners within churches to declare their beliefs and not to be forced or compelled to do something they don't want to do, but also to be able to articulate what they believe. If we can secure these rights of freedom of speech and freedom of practice of religion, then I personally find it difficult to see whose freedoms are being impinged by the move towards this this legislation. I don't feel, for example, that, that my marriage will be diminished in any way if single-sex marriage is, is introduced. And as long as people's freedoms to say what they believe are protected, and as long as we uh, can uh, make sure that nobody's compelled 
uh, as a religious practitioner to act against their wishes, uh, then I think this, this matter can be conducted in a way which hopefully will avoid some of the, the fears that, that people have at the, at the present moment. And if I can turn lastly to the gentleman who asked about, well, the simple answer is no, that the individual NATO countries are not compelled to take part in the in military action. And for example, uh, Germany uh, and France in the, uh, in the illegal war in Iraq. Uh, I mean, uh, my, uh, my lady wife uh, named one of her ducks Dominic uh, after that uh, fantastic encounter. You may remember some of us at the Security Council of the United Nations where Dominic de Vilpen <laughs> Uh, spoke uh, uh, for uh, France and indeed for many people across the world as he outlined and explained why the military action uh, in Iraq was wrong. So there's an, a, an obvious example that being a member of NATO doesn't compel you to take part in any military action. And of course the, the terms of the resolution uh, which I have here actually going to the SNP conference is particularly interesting. It'll be for debate and decision at that conference. It says, on independence, Scotland will inherit treaty obligations to NATO. An SNP government would maintain NATO membership subject to an agreement that Scotland will not host nuclear weapons and that NATO continues to respect the right of members to only take part in United Nations sanctioned actions and operations. So, you know, not only is it true, uh, what I've just said, and the examples are there and obvious from recent conflicts, uh, but we actually have it... Uh, in the proposal that's going to the, the SNP conference. So I look forward to, to that debate and, and perhaps there again some of the, the misgivings around this issue can be resolved. And now if I may, can I ask Nicola to, to expand a bit on the, the issue of, uh, of single-sex marriage? I thought the, the First Minister covered the issues um, extremely well. I recognise, the government recognises that the issue of same-sex marriage is one that inspires very strong feelings on both sides of the debate. I had the privilege on the way in of speaking to many people who are here today to make sure the government understands their view on the issue. And by definition, on an issue that inspires feelings of that strength, whatever decision the government makes is going to disappoint some people. And we understand that and we all deeply respect the views of those who, whether it's for religious reasons or for other reasons, uh, don't agree with legislating for same-sex marriage. The government has uh, said that it intends to bring forward uh, same-sex marriage legislation, but as the First Minister has said, that legislation will be for Parliament to consider. And the SNP has made clear that MSPs uh, that sit on our benches, including uh, government ministers, will have a free vote and it's for each MSP to come to their own decision on that. There will be no party whip applied uh, to that vote from the SNP's perspective. And I, I would, it's not for me to speak for other political parties, obviously, but I would hope other parties would take uh, that view as well. Uh, in making that decision and in uh, outlining that decision, we've been very clear also on the protections that we think it's very important to build into any legislation. My view, very simply and very strongly, is that it's for the government to regulate and to legislate around the civil contract of marriage. And governments down the ages have done that in various different ways and changed the civil contract of marriage, who can get divorced, who can get married on many different occasions. It is absolutely not the role of government to tell any church that they must marry anybody. And that's why we've been very clear that no church and no individual celebrant will be compelled to conduct same-sex marriages if they feel that that is against the position of their faith. And, you know, we've seen 
other issues in which there has, have been differences between uh, what the state allows in terms of marriage and what some churches uh, agree or don't agree with. For example, the state has long allowed people to get divorced. Some churches uh, have not uh, taken the decision to remarry people uh, who uh, have been divorced. So we've, we've all, for a long time had on some issues that distinction between the civil contract of marriage and the position churches take. And I think that is absolutely right and proper. As the First Minister said, we've uh, made very clear that we think in order to give absolute protection to individual religious celebrants, we require to amend the UK Equality Act. It's a, an act of parliament that's currently reserved to the UK parliament. And we have made very clear we will get that agreement to that amendment in place before introducing any legislation. And we've recognised, um, as again, I think we are duty bound to do, that there are other concerns that, you know, just because we might not always think those concerns are well-founded doesn't mean they're not legitimate. Concerns around uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, some aspects of the, the school curriculum, and that's why we're going into a careful focus consultation now, which will see us do everything we can to address those practical concerns that exist. So that's how we're going to proceed on the issue. I, I don't expect that we will get to a point where we get everybody to agree on this issue. Um, but I do hope, um, and knowing Scotland as I do, I, I really do hope this, uh, that we can get to the point where we can have uh, a civilised debate about this, recognising that some of us take different views, but respecting each other's views and working through the issues in that way. And if we all go about it in that way, then I think it can probably uh, enhance uh, our parliamentary democracy rather than the opposite. Yep, one here, one there, and then one up the back. First of all. And then I'll come over to this side next. Um, well, I'm the student president at UWS, and first of all, congratulations to the Scottish Government and Mr Russell for introducing um, the best student support package in the whole of the UK. My question is, um, with the limited powers that the Scottish Government has, and in response to the, the downright shameful actions of the UK Government and the UKBA, what can the Scottish Government do to say to our international students and community that they are, they are valued and they are welcomed? Okay. Uh, given the recent uh, announcements of hundreds of millions of pounds investment within the area and listening to what our First Minister has told us today, um, the fact that the area is serviced only by one bus company Will the Scottish Government give serious consideration to re-establishing a rail link to Renfrew and perhaps beyond to encourage further inward investment and help reduce traffic congestion in the area? Thank you. And in the chequered shot. Uh, first of all, I'd like to congratulate the Scottish Government on the acquirement of uh, this investment. Um, kind of raises the point, how might you save money within the public sec sector? You talk always of local accountability, yet um, we're expected as the families of people with autism to fight local authorities for basic services because the Scottish Government will not provide the disability-specific standards to give us a fighting chance of upholding our children's rights. So we end up paying for the inflated salaries of bureaucrats who are there to stop our children getting their rights to basic services and who basically abuse their powers in doing so. And there's nothing we can do about it 
in the absence of disability-specific standards. So when might you introduce these standards? Okay, First Minister. Right, if I take the, uh, the, the three questions in turn, and I'm, I'm going to ask uh, uh, the appropriate minister to, to give some, some detail, but uh, on the first one, uh, uh, the, the point is really well made about the, the fact that international students in our colleges and universities are, are a major driver of, uh, of economic wealth. I mean, uh, we, in, the, in the modern world, and in this century and beyond, the, the, the importance of the higher education sector, both in terms of what it can do for our people and our future uh, in enhancing skills and uh, abilities, but also as a driver on the economy, you know, cannot be underestimated. And, and you know, I'm proud and happy that uh, in addition to having a record number, a record number of uh, students at universities and colleges in Scotland from Scotland this year, you know, which about 84% of our college and university students are in Scotland or from Scotland, that the international applications to our universities have been rising. Uh, and that is a, a tribute to the excellence and reputation of our universities. We have, incidentally, folks, more universities per head in the world's top 200 than any country on the planet, uh, which is, you know, a big accolade for, uh, uh, for Scotland. But there is a, a danger just now, uh, which the question rightly points to. Uh, and I'm going to ask uh, Mike if you would like to, to, to say a bit about just what exactly that danger is. Well, I, obviously each university and college seeks to attract students worldwide, not simply because <coughs> it's a matter of income, but it's a matter of, uh, of, of intellectual and academic lifeblood. And many universities, for example, attract students who will stay through that, do a PhD, and perhaps get involved in research within Scotland. And this is a vital part of, of the international academic community. And the attitude of the UK BA and of the UK government, not just this one, but of the previous government too, has been deeply unhelpful. Uh, and I know when I travel abroad with universities and colleges that people want to come and study here, they want to take part, but one of the disincentives is the attitude of the UK BA. Now, the trusted sponsor status, which is a status that colleges must have, is being withdrawn from some Scottish colleges, and that's going to be an additional disincentive. The very simple answer to your point is to have a Scottish migration policy, to have independence, to make those decisions in Scotland. Because then we would make those decisions according to the Scottish priorities. It, it, the kindest thing that you could say about the, 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 the policy being adopted south of the border, it, it is totally focused on the southeast of England. That would be the kindest thing you could say about it. It doesn't take account of the needs of Scotland or the Scottish academic community. But in the interim, what we need to make sure is we're making the strongest possible representation with all the colleges and universities. Last year, I signed a joint letter with all Scottish university principals. This year, I am supporting the Edinburgh colleges, who are in the midst of a, a very difficult row with the UK BA. And this government will go on supporting individual colleges, universities, and individual students when they come here. And can I just say, the First Minister is absolutely right to say, too, this is about the quality of participation and the equality of participation and the richness it brings to our university and colleges. We should welcome diversity in our university and colleges, and the UKBA seem to think it's a threat. It is nonsensical, it's academically damaging, but it's damaging to our reputation as a nation throughout the world. Uh, the second question, can I ask uh, Keith Brown, <coughs> I'd like to, uh, Jeff, uh, the gentleman's pointing out the, the recent very positive announcements and capital investments uh, here locally. We're wondering if it's therefore appropriate there's one bus provider uh, here in, uh, in Renfrew. Do you want to speak a bit about that and perhaps enlarge on some of the other transport issues here in the town? 
Yes, of course, the, the situation you mentioned, I'm aware of that, a takeover that was undertaken by one of the companies of another company is not something which we're able to regulate in Scotland. It's dealt with, I think in that case, it was investigated by the Competition Commission. Um, I think what we have to concentrate on is what we can influence, and that, of course, is the quality of the service. And Renfrewshire, as you may know, is uh, leading in the country in terms of this. The first uh, council, I think, perhaps under Derek Mackay's leadership, to have uh, a quality partnership agreed, which has now been taken up by other councils, not least Glasgow City Council. So we have to concentrate on the quality of the bus services, notwithstanding the concerns <coughs> you have about a single operator. And to that end, we contribute around a quarter of a billion pounds every year to make sure, for example, concessionary travel continues whereas it's been taken away in many other parts of the UK. So that's the nature of our support. You also raised the question of the capital investment. One of those, of course, is £169 million that we've invested in the previously railway corridor. Um, and in relation to that, you mentioned, of course, the possibility of further stations, <coughs> perhaps one for Renfrew. During the recent announcement on the rail franchise, which is coming up in 2014, I announced in Parliament that we have set up a fund of £30 million, which is accessible by any council across Scotland. Many communities would like to see a railway station in their area, and we are willing to set aside that money to try and make that happen. Where it's the case that uh, the council or another body, perhaps a regional transport partnership, come forward with a proposal and having properly examined it, because you can't just you know, create uh, stations willy-nilly, but if, if a rail uh, service is beneficial over a bus service, then we will look at that, and that £30 million has been set aside. So what I'd say is that the council and also developers as well can be involved in this if they can make a contribution perhaps to the capital cost of the station uh, and regional transport partnerships should come to the Scottish Government with their proposals. This fund opens in early, early 2014, and we'll look at any reasonable proposal to increase the rail network in Scotland. Uh, and, and finally, the, the, the lady's question about the, uh, what she described as unsatisfactory bureaucracy which surrounds the, the uh, provision for, uh, for children in the autistic uh, spectrum. Nicola, do you want to say some detail on that? Yes. Um, firstly, on the general point Fiona uh, made, I agree absolutely, and John Swinney has uh, led the efforts across government to make sure we are trying to spend money as much as possible in a, a preventative way so that, for example, anybody who has a health condition of whatever age they might be, we're supporting them as far as possible to live independently, to fulfil their potential. It's better from a, a human perspective and frankly, it's a more effective use of money as well. So that general point about a preventative spend is one that the, the government is very supportive of indeed. On the specific point um, about autism, and I'm very well aware of, of your close interest and I know you've had uh, several meetings over uh, the years on this issue. We, as you know, and I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know here, we have a, an autism strategy in place which sets out a number of uh, milestones that we are seeking to achieve over uh, the short, medium and longer term, long term being a 10-year period to improve uh, services for children with autism and access to those services because you know, just having services is not good enough if children cannot access them. We recently, I think at the tail end of last year, announced investment around about £13 million to support that strategy and to improve services and access. I, I absolutely know uh, the point you're making about having uh, disability uh, standards in place. We you know, will always remain open to how we further improve access to services, but the strategy we've got in place I think is the right one, and I think it's important that we, with the investment, uh, get on and make sure that we implement that over the, the timescale we've set out. Okay, thank you. We'll try and take as many questions as we can. And of course, there's sheets on your seat. If you don't manage to get your question answered today, ministers will respond. I'll take one here, there, and then here. I'll try and come back to you.
Uh, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Bob Davidson. I'm the Chief Exec of Renfrewshire Chamber of Commerce. A number of my board and members are here today. So thanks to the Cabinet for coming. Uh, it's, it's great to see this uh, in Renfrew and obviously in the fantastic Renfrew Town Hall. Uh, the question I have for you, I've got an introduction to it first, so excuse me while I read it. Uh, earlier this year, the government announced the creation of four uh, enterprise areas in Scotland. And unfortunately, Renfrewshire did not feature in that. It is our ambition that the substantial economic contribution of Renfrewshire, including and in particular the area around Glasgow Airport, is recognised at a national level. And a bit of the background to the actual question. Renfrewshire has a proud history of manufacturing. We manufacture about 30% of what Scotland exports from a manufacturing point of view. With many growing companies, including those in life sciences, renewables such as we've seen today with steel engineering, aerospace, textiles, scotch whisky, and just general engineering as a whole. What commitments can the Cabinet give to ensure the economic contribution of the area is even further recognised and that it receives, for example, enterprise zone status, which would help further progress the significant, significant potential of Renfrewshire, help companies grow faster, create jobs, help unemployment? Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I'd like to ask, uh, welcome very much the community and uh, Renewal and Empowerment Bill that's currently passing through the Scottish Parliament. As a local councillor in Renfrewshire, uh, we just the preambles and sure. get straight to the this questions. Is a, this please. is a bill that will enable derelict land to be reused, remediated for community and social use. And I think, in terms of community regeneration, that's really important. Uh, I'd like the government to comment further on these proposals. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you there. Nanette Reid, Chair of Linstone Housing Association. Also, Flair spokesman, and I have the privilege of being the Scottish uh, Forum in Parliament. Uh, the, my question is, given that the government can find millions of pounds to help home owners and first-time buyers, why can't it find resources to mitigate the effects of the UK government's welfare reform proposals on social housing in Scotland? Thank you. Thanks, right, the, can I, I'm going to ask John Swinney to, to comment on the, the, the first two, but the, uh, I was interested, I mean, the, you're quite right, Bob, that, uh, and you're absolutely right, instantly, to articulate the case, because uh, you know, that's exactly what needs to be done. Uh, I was just going to point out that, uh, since maybe I didn't uh, make it clear enough, that the, this uh, reclaiming of the port here is because that Renfrew was the, the first award Scotland's first award under the Renewable Development Fund for port and infrastructure facilities in the whole of Scotland. So the River Cart will be brought back as a, as a viable industrial uh, link because Renfrew was, was, was first in the queue. And of course, uh, Angela Constance uh, announced Renfrewshire as, as one of the areas which, uh, which was uh, qualified in, I think, with four across Scotland uh, for special help in, uh, in youth employment. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is it wasn't just the extent of the, uh, the issue, but also the extent of the opportunity that we believe this area had in terms of the, the, the potential of, uh, of great employment opportunities if the additional help was there. And there's 1,000, 1,000 modern apprentices in this area now, this year. 1,000 modern apprentices, all of whom have jobs in Stirling. The great thing about apprentices in Scotland is they have jobs that attach to employment. I'm not diminishing what's done elsewhere and, you know, in, uh, in colleges and things, of course, in, in England, but 
uh, always strikes me as an apprenticeship which is employed is, is fundamentally important. There's 1,000 because Renfrew and Renfrewshire was one of the four areas in Scotland which was designated as having special uh, uh, attention in terms of the, the huge youth employment issue. So with that preamble, I'm going to ask Mr Swinney to, to first answer that question on enterprise zones and then perhaps turn to the question on uh, re regeneration as well. Yeah, on, the, on Bob's point, what I'd want to assure you about, Bob, is that the, the enterprise areas, um, and there are 14 of them around Scotland, um, grouped uh, under four major uh, themes. Um, by their nature, enterprise areas can't be everywhere. And we've chosen uh, a set of destinations where we think very specifically the link between that geography and a particular sector uh, means there is a, a very strong case for giving uh, essentially an, a, an additional uh, string to the bow of that area in terms of the attraction of investment. But right across the country, there are a whole range of different incentives and supports in place to encourage company growth. Because at the heart of your question, is a point with which the government is in total agreement that we generate employment in Scotland by encouraging and supporting growth and expansion within individual companies. So right throughout Renfrewshire, and I've visited many of these companies, and the First Minister was visiting one um, earlier on today, um, are companies that are given direct support by Scottish Enterprise in this locality to assist their expansion plans. Um, they're also given access to support to internationalise their business activities because there are loads of companies in Renfrewshire that export their activities and their products, but there's loads that don't. And there's no real reason why the ones that don't shouldn't. They just perhaps need a bit of help and encouragement and advice to assist them in doing so. And that's a, the whole um, export activity is a major part of and, and theme of our uh, activities. And the other thing is that our, our approach to supporting companies is driven by a number of key sectors that um, we believe there's potential for growth in. Um, the ones of particular relevance in Renfrewshire are the energy sector, the life sciences sector, the creative industry sectors, all of which are very, and the university sector, I should say, with the University of the West of Scotland into the bargain. So um, I wouldn't want you to think that the enterprise areas are um, the only initiative that we take. There's a whole range. And of course, for the small business community, we support that very substantially and we'll be supporting a whole host of companies in very close proximity to this town hall through the small business bonus scheme that either reduces or removes business rates, which certainly in my travels around the country, small business people say to me that's been a lifeline for them during what's been a really difficult period um, in the economy. Um, so there's a lot of support in place and it's, it's very focused to encourage that employment growth. On the second point about the Community Empowerment Bill that's going through Parliament, and uh, Derek Mackay has taken that through on the government's behalf, um, the purpose of this bill is to ensure that we remove some of the obstacles and put in place some of the encouragement and the incentives um, to essentially give communities much greater leadership and ability to determine their own future. Um, fundamentally, we think that's a good principle. Um, if uh, communities feel them in the driving, they're in the driving seat of their own future, um, that will be, well, we consider that to be the best place for communities to be because it encourages enterprise, encourages innovation, it allows people to say, right, we're going to do good things for Renfrew. I'm pretty sure there must have been a, a, a real aspiration in this town to refurbish this town hall, to get the money together, to push bodies to 
get in behind it. And the Community Empowerment Bill is to give a bit more legislative force to encouraging that process. And um, we're obviously listening very carefully to the feedback from members of the public about that bill to make sure we can make it as strong as possible. Uh, if we could turn to the, the lady who asked the, the question on, uh, on housing associations and the, the impact of the welfare reform uh, uh, proposals uh, from uh, Westminster. It's an example of something that gives the Scottish Parliament a huge difficulty because we, we took as a Parliament uh, earlier this year uh, a decision to uh, protect people on housing benefit uh, from the 10% cut which is being applied uh, across the board in England. And that was an agreement we uh, agreed with every local authority in Scotland through, through COSLA, uh, with a contribution from government, a contribution from local authorities. And we did that because we, we thought it was one thing we could do to try and blunt the, the edge of, of what's going on. Of course, the knock-on effect, as the lady will know extremely well, of a housing benefit uh, uh, cut is, of course, the, the knock-on effect on, on housing associations and others in terms of their guaranteed revenue, which, of course, makes it worse because the housing association's uh, ability to, 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 to borrow and to get the funds to build more houses depends on the security of the revenue that they have. And, and that's why we, we did that. But, you know, we don't kid ourselves on that, you know, we can, on a fixed budget as a parliament, uh, you know, wipe uh, every measure that Westminster are taking away when we can't do it. We've done it in a lot. You know, we've got free education in Scotland. Uh, they're paying through the nose at, uh, uh, in England. They've had a collapse in their university applications as a result of that. And we, so I think we're vindicated in what we did is right. But you know, every single measure that we mitigate and try to change is being done against a, a fixed budget, uh, which uh, and therefore we, we don't we don't we know we can't do everything because because of that we can only mitigate we can only try and take the harshest edge of uh, of things. But perhaps I could ask uh, Keith Brown to say a word to maybe about the housing associations as the housing minister uh, or representing the housing minister Alec Neil here, Keith. Yes, just as I think as the First Minister said, we are taking action to try and mitigate the effects of these uh, cuts. Two particular ones. One is the issue of direct payments to benefit claimants, which I'm sure the lady will be familiar with the problems with that. If you give direct payments to somebody who has, for example, a very chaotic lifestyle, then it can often be that paying their rent is one of the lower things on their, their priority list, with the result that they can lose their home. We've argued to we're blue in the face with the UK government this is a bad move. Uh, without too much success, we've had some success in terms of people with disabilities, but not on that issue. And the other payment, of course, the other issue is, of course, the occupancy rate, where there's changes being made there as well. So the way that we are tackling that is to give money to the hubs, the housing hubs which are around the country, to first of all uh, see how they can mitigate the effects of that and also to undertake research with the, the housing profession, uh, the Institute of Housing um, and Delacho and others to try and see how best we can mitigate that. But it is the case that despite the fact we've set aside £730 million as our commitment to build 30,000 uh, houses for rent over the five years of this parliament, 20,000 of which of course, are for social rent, 5,000 of which, of course, are council houses. The first ever huge programme of council house building that Scotland's seen for a generation. I would much rather spend the money, the mitigation money, on more houses rather than have to spend it on trying to obviate the worst effects of Westminster's cuts. And, of course, under independence, you can tie in much more easily the benefit system with the housing supply system, a discretion which we don't currently have. So we are aware of the issue and we're working with the housing sector to make sure we can mitigate its worst effects, but we'll carry on with the house building programme as well. Okay, now try and take a few more questions. Um, 
specifically on the community empowerment and renewal bill, you might wonder, well, what would it mean for my community? I'll give you a local example, Common Good Funds, that poses questions around that, and underused and unused public buildings as well could be transferred more easily to the community where there's a demand to do that. So that's the kind of action that could come out of that uh, uh, bill. I want to come, I see there's a school here. Which school is it? Trinity High School. Any questions from the high school? Yep, okay. I think it's fair we hear from the young folk. The Better Together campaign argues that strong, Scotland is stronger now and will be stronger in the future, economically, politically and socially, as a partner in the United Kingdom. How do you believe Scotland will be stronger, economically, politically and socially, as an independent country, than it would be, than it would be as part of the UK? Okay, I think that's set the tone. So I'll take two other questions maybe relating to that. Yep, one here and then one up there, if we can. Uh, John Wilby, Paisley North LAC. Uh, my question is about the Scottish Audit Report on Community Transport, which identified a huge number of downtime and spare capacity uh, across the transport agencies in Scotland. And whilst the Scottish Ambulance Service Initiative is allocating its patient transport uh, resources in some areas to community transport is very welcome. There's a widespread perception and concern uh, about the absence of collective response uh, to this audit report in the west of Scotland. And I wondered what the Cabinet might feel about uh, encouraging this in some way. Okay, and uh, finally, the gentleman in the corner. Mr. Salmond, Jack McConnell, your predecessor as First Minister, identified sectarianism and bigotry as a blight in the face of Scottish society. He set about identifying the areas of concern and initiated legislation to deal with the perceived problems. When he left office, he stated that he was satisfied that great progress had been made and would continue to be made if the incoming administration continued to prioritise the matter. When you took office, you seemed to be intent on continuing along the same course of action. Recently, some people have gained the impression that you are now a bit lukewarm and have taken your eye off the ball. Next year, there is to be a parade in Renfrew about which there is likely to be deep-seated divisions. Could I ask you whether you think it appropriate that this parade should be permitted to go ahead? If so, why so? And if not, why not? What would be the advice you would give to your local councillors on the matter? And what, if you were asked, would be your advice to Strathclyde Police? And if I might ask your views in separate denominational schools? Mr. McConnell made plain his support can, for them by sending his children to denominational schools despite being accused of supporting educational apartheid, which critics allege cost Remshire Council extra costs of more than £5 million per year. Where do you stand in that matter? Westminster. Okay. Can I answer the, the, the gentleman first? Uh, uh, I uphold the, uh, the agreement that was made in the 1920s on uh, denominational education in Scotland. Uh, that was a, a, an agreement uh, voluntary entered into when the Catholic education came into the state sector uh, in Scotland, uh, and I think that agreement should be upheld. And nor do I accept, incidentally, that uh, uh, the, uh, the nature of the variety of the education we have in Scotland is a source of the, the bigotry and, uh, and discrimination we have in Scotland. I, I see too many examples of... Uh, uh, of Catholic schools and, uh, and state schools working uh, together hand in hand uh, in great projects. Just now, I went to one recently, and uh, uh, to see their uh, their uh, film demonstration and warning of the uh, the dangers of uh, religious discrimination in a, a film form, which was an absolutely marvellous thing to see. One of the 
many projects that the Scottish Government uh, is promoting at a grassroots level to overcome uh, the bigotry that we still have in Scotland. I, I have to say, I, I was kind of smiling that, uh, when they were asking the question about taking our eye off the ball. I mean, in the last year, we've put through uh, what many people would regard as, uh, uh, as groundbreaking and uh, controversial legislation uh, to basically stop uh, something which uh, I believe scarred Scottish society, and that was the openly in a public display uh, surrounding football, uh, open displays of, of bigotry and, and discrimination in terms of, of language, in terms of songs. And uh, I think we, for generations in Scotland, you know, thought, oh, well, it's just a boys' game. We'll turn the blind eye to it. We'll turn the sound down in the telly. We'll pretend it's no happening. In the last year, we've now legislated with great controversy and, uh, uh, and, uh, and interestingly enough, since the legislation actually passed and come into effect, you may have noticed that uh, some of that controversy seems to have died down. The reason that controversy has died down is because it's working. Uh, appropriate arrests have been made, both in terms of people who think they have some sort of human right to uh, decry and to insult their, their fellow human beings just because they're on a football terracing. That's not tolerated anymore, and arrests and prosecutions have been successfully made. And also, even more uh, challenging in a way, but successfully done, uh, the ability to, to stop people doing it through the internet, uh, and people believing if they're at two o'clock in the morning, uh, in the anonymity of sitting beside their computer, that they can say the vilest things or threatening things uh, across the internet and do it with impunity. That's no longer tolerated and successful. Uh, arrests have been made. Now, do I believe that the criminal law is the only way in which you pursue these things? No, I don't. Uh, and I celebrate the much greater understanding between uh, denominations that, that, that we have in Scotland than, than we had previously. Uh, I celebrate the fact that uh, uh, at uh, uh, school level in particular, I, I think people are looking upon this uh, manifestation as something from the Stone Age in Scotland, I think that's happening, and I think there's a generational change that's taking place that will help us. But I do think that the law has to take a stand, and I would have thought that the stand taken by the Scottish Government in terms of passing that legislation, which incidentally we didn't do to, to win any great popularity contest, because I managed to, to have banners about me simultaneously at Ibrox and Celtic Park. Uh, somehow, something which I don't think any other politician in Scotland has ever united <laughs> the terracing before. But can also say I'm now in the seat of correspondence uh, from uh, the fans of, of both clubs who quietly just say, look, uh, we think behaviour is improving substantially and we welcome the fact that unacceptable behaviour is no longer tolerated uh, in Scotland. And, you know, so... I, I don't claim for a second, incidentally, that uh, we are past uh, uh, discrimination and bigotry in Scottish society. I, I think it's a demon from our past that all of us have to work to eradicate. But in terms of trying to treat uh, everybody in society equally with respect, understanding their point of view, then I, I hope and believe that uh, whatever else might be said about the administration I lead, that we absolutely try to do that. Uh, and I, I hope that... Uh, that convinces you. I'm very happy to speak further about it with, with, with you, sir, after, after the meeting. Uh, now, we have uh, the question on the 
a transport audit, which again I'm going to refer to uh, Keith Brown. I think the, the essential point that we have to properly exploit all the transport uh, infrastructure we have, in particular um, buses which are not, I think the gentleman raised the point, buses which are not used nearly to the extent they could be, we understand that point. There's a, a, a good deal of work going on just now between, for example, transport and health officials to make sure that we can try and deal with the issue that was mentioned about ambulances. Uh, not just uh, using ambulances where, the, where it's possible for different purposes, but also doing the work that ambulances do using other services. Uh, Glasgow City Council actually have been very proactive in relation to this, not least with their school transport service, making the most effective use of that, using it for different purposes, making it available to the community. Um, so we are aware of the issue, and I think you, you, the gentleman's right to say there's more we have to do. One other thing, though, in relation to demand-responsive transport, where people phone up for a bus because they have a disability, we have taken the move of trying to bring them into the concessionary travel scheme. It seemed odd that you could not get a concessionary fare for that because you were unable to access a normal uh, bus, which had uh, you know, insufficiently dis uh, access for people with disabilities. So we have tried to address that, but it's, it's a good point that's made, as well as having to look at how to absorb some of these cuts, making the best use of existing resources is very important, not least in relation to buses. Now, if I could address the, uh, uh, the question from, uh, from Trinity High, uh, a subject which uh, I've spoken about occasionally over the, uh, uh, over the years. Uh, and, uh, but he asked the question about the, the, the Better Together campaign, saying, look, we're all better working together in the, in the UK. I suppose my answer would be this, that last uh, Sunday in the People newspaper, not maybe the required reading of everybody in this uh, in this audience, the leader of the Better Together campaign, Alistair Darling, said in his article that George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, was destroying economic recovery. And by destroying economic recovery, destroying the hopes and, and, and dreams of, of, of people in this country. Now, I make the point because how can he argue that we are better together when he's arguing that the person who runs the Scottish economy effectively at the present moment, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, certainly in terms of demand in the economy, is destroying the prospects of people in Scotland. You see, instead of the better together argument, let's put the essential truth to people. I believe that the people who are best able to run this country of Scotland are the people who live and stay here. I think the people, and I think it's essentially true, and I think it's true of Scotland, I think it's true of every nation on earth, that the people who take the best decisions are the people who care most about the country, and the people who care most about the country are the people who live, stay, uh, and, and pursue their lives here. Uh, and therefore, my argument against it would be, look, that uh, nations, all nations, uh, are interdependent. Every single nation on earth is interdependent one upon the other. I mean, the United States of America, the most powerful nation in the, in the world, is interdependent on other countries. But just because we're interdependent, because we have things in common, it doesn't mean that you should allow key decisions affecting the future of your country to be taken elsewhere. And just in the questions that we've had today, we've had a range of people saying, look, what are you doing about what Westminster's doing about students? What are you doing about what Westminster's doing about welfare reform? What are you doing about this that Westminster are doing? And I'm saying, well, look, we're doing our best. You know, we're absolutely trying to help and mitigate to stop the damage that's being done. I just say to, to, to this audience here in Renfrew, as I'll say to Scotland, wouldn't it be better if we could just take these decisions for ourselves? I said earlier, we wouldn't take every decision correctly. Of course we won't. But at least we'd be certain that they'll be taken with the best interests of this country, its people, and its future at heart. And that applies particularly to the economy at the present moment. So I think my answer to 
uh, to Trinity High question. An excellent question it is. As I would say, the very leader of the Better Together campaign, out of his own words in the People newspaper last Sunday, gave the lie to his own argument. Because it's because of people like Alistair Darling that this country of Scotland is at the beck and call of Conservatives and Tories like George Osborne. And if we want to remove that danger, not just now, not just with this government, but that danger in the future, then why don't we have a government which is able to take all of the decisions affecting this country elected by the people of this country? That would be my answer. And I should say, of course, in terms of football, people here would support Renfrew Juniors and St Mern exclusively. <laughs> now, we've got time for three final questions, and I've seen people indicate from the start. So, one here, here, and you, sir, there. So, yep. And I'll come back. Yep. Thanks very go. much. Um, I represent the Scottish Youth Parliament. My question's on curriculum for excellence. How can you implement a system when teachers themselves have said they're unclear about the outcomes of curriculum for excellence? Okay. And you, sir, there. Yeah. Uh, I represent the Coast Park District Residents Association. Uh, the Deputy First Minister, in your capacity as Cabinet Secretary for Health and Wellbeing, your policy to abolish hospital car parking charges was welcomed throughout Scotland. You qualified this by saying car parks must be properly managed to ensure the needs of hospital patients and staff are well balanced. The Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board took this to extreme by displacing 300 vehicles from the car park at Renfrew, um, at Paisley Royal uh, Alexander Hospital into the neighbouring hood. We've effectively become a free car park for your policy. Um, the Residents Association was formed to try and deal with this. We have 140 households now um, who have made some progress with Renfrewshire Council with their support, but no one actually owns this problem. Um, we would really want some commitment from, um, uh, from Nicola to uh, come along to our next working group meeting and give it a kickstart. Okay, and here. Andrew McGowan, the Trustee Director of the Scottish Youth Parliament. Um, we've worked with the Scottish Government in many issues of importance to the young people of Scotland, um, one of them being the equal marriage. Um, and so thank you for to Nicola Sturgeon especially for the hard work the Scottish Government's done. Um, at the last sitting of the Scottish Youth Parliament, we passed our national campaign as the living wage. Um, does the Scottish uh, First Minister um, support us on that? Okay, First Minister. Well, well, of course, we've, we've introduced in the government service uh, a living wage of 7.20 an hour. Uh, the, uh, that, I think, is a good move. Uh, we've asked, and uh, all SNP-controlled local authorities are also implementing uh, that, uh, that policy. Uh, I think that's a, a grand thing to do, and uh, you know, it's what I describe as part of the, the social wage uh, that uh, you know, people say, Freezing the council tax. Well, freezing the council tax has a, had a huge impact on family budgets over the last four years and helping people through the most extraordinary times. You know, every other price <laughs> is going up. You know, energy prices up nine percent. Electricity prices, but at least the council tax has been frozen. That's up water rates for, for, for folk. You know, and so in the social wage, but, but being able through the public sector to establish the, the living wage has been uh, has been, I think, really 
really an important move. So, so I, 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 def I definitely, well, not just support that. Uh, that's what we're practicing, what we preach, as far as uh, as far as that's concerned. Uh, I'm going to turn to Nicola because you've been uh, you've been given an invitation to the, to the the Residents Association, and the gentleman is saying that the uh, a policy, well-intentioned policy nationally, has had some unfortunate impact locally. And are you going to do something about it? And are you going to you're going to accept his well, invitation, you probably, Nicola? You, you've, I always like to accept kind invitations, so um, I'm sure we can arrange something there. Um, I'm going to be very honest with you here. I've got a lot of sympathy with the points you're making. Equally, it's a very, very difficult issue uh, to resolve. If you told me five years ago when I, I first took up the First Minister's invitation to be Health Secretary that one of the thorniest problems I would deal with was car parking at hospitals, I, I probably wouldn't have believed you. We've got a problem in that many of our hospitals, the Royal Alexandra is a, a case in point, were built at times when there just weren't as many cars on the road as is the case now. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a statistic which probably won't be accurate down to the last, uh, the last digit, but it's broadly accurate. In Glasgow, there's something like 4,000 car parking spaces across all of the hospitals in the city. There's 14,000 people work in those hospitals. That's before you count the patients or the visitors. So that's the, the problem we've got. When I uh, took office, we had a very controversial policy uh, to charge people for parking. Most people, uh, patients, visitors, and especially staff, thought that was deeply unfair, and I agreed with that, and we removed charges. Hospitals and health boards, though, still have to find some way of managing that mismatch between the supply of car parking spaces and the demand that there is on those car parking spaces. And they've got to find as fair a way as possible. But as you will understand from the numbers I've just given you, no matter what way they try to do that, some people feel aggrieved by it. But I do know I don't any longer because of boundary changes, but I used to represent uh, the area that includes the Southern General and the people who live around the Southern General had exactly the same issue uh, that you're talking about. I am happy to undertake in the first instance, um, as well as uh, consider your kind invitation to speak to the Health Board to see if there are, I know they did make available a small number of additional spaces. Uh, I appreciate that hasn't completely solved the problem. So I will speak to them to see if there are further initiatives uh, they could suggest or take that might not completely resolve this issue, uh, but might help to alleviate it further. And I'm, I'm happy to come back to you on that. Okay, so it sounds like she's on her way to your residence association. So she's quite formidable, so prepare your ground. <laughs> but uh, lastly, we've got the, uh, the, the Scottish Youth Parliament, uh, and I'm going to ask Mike Russell to, to, to say a word. And just to paraphrase, for <coughs> the, I'm incredibly excited by Curriculum for Excellence. Uh, I, I think uh, it's one of the few reforms uh, in terms of uh, school curriculum in Scotland in recent generations, which to me makes incredible sense. Uh, I, I really do think this is going to be a, a fantastic uh, experience for, uh, for our pupils coming through. It already is incidentally introduced, as you know, in primary schools, and it's, it's more than uh, in showing it's, uh, it's made a, a huge difference for the better. We, you know, we've got the best results ever in our primary schools uh, uh, this year, and, uh, and uh, I think that is some of the advantages of, of Curriculum for Excellence that have been made themselves to be felt. You know, when you're in a process of changing something, and that applies throughout life, that, that there is a, there's always a, a process that has to go through because people understandably who have been used to doing things in a certain way for a long period of time sometimes take a, a bit of persuasion that there's a, a different way. 
But what I would say in Correct for Excellence, I found among the teaching profession a huge number of enthusiasts because the heart of Correct for Excellence, of course, depends on the professionalism and judgment of the teachers. They will have a much larger role in selecting and using huge modern technology to be able to do that. The things which are most relevant of interest to the, 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 the pupils and classes in their care. And that reliance on the professionalism of the teaching profession, I think, is a a great aspect of curriculum for excellence. But the, the man in the hot seat, as far as this is concerned, is Michael Russell, the Education Secretary, and he knows incredibly more about the <laughs> subject than I do. In fact, about every subject, uh, but well, Michael Russell. Not about every subject, First Minister. Um, I'm also, like the First Minister, very excited by curriculum for excellence, and um, I'm very lucky to have been in there at the beginning. The Scottish Parliament's Education Committee in 2002 held an inquiry into the purpose of education at the same time as our predecessors uh, held what they called a national debate on education. And both of those came to the same conclusion. The Scottish education that the Scottish Parliament inherited in 1999 was over-examined, it was over-inspected, it wasn't deep enough, it wasn't joined up enough. In other words, it wasn't doing the job that it needed to do then, let alone for the 21st century. So we all agreed, right across the Parliament, all the parties agreed, and all educationalists agreed, that we should devise a new way of doing things in Scotland. Now, we've stuck with that and we've stuck in with it. We're now in, curriculum uh, uh, for excellence has gone right through the primary sector. Uh, it's now rolling into S3 in the secondary sector this year. And indeed, if there's anybody here as a parent of an S3 child and have had a, a letter from me in the last week talking about what their child's going to experience. And then over the next few years, it's going to go right through the secondary sector and it's already being adopted in the college sector and the university sector. So for the first time ever, we'll have a common approach to education across all the education sectors, and it'll be a joined-up approach, and it'll have very clear objectives, and that it has very clear objectives, and we know that that is the type of education system that other people are now looking at and saying, this is what we need to do. So worldwide, there are people saying, what's happening in Scotland, and the First Minister is right, curriculum change is always difficult, whatever you do, they're saying, this is the right way to go ahead. And why is it the right way? Because what it actually does is it gives positive, joined-up, enthusiastic education. And I could take you to lots of schools in Scotland where you would go and meet young people in S1 and S2 who have been through the primary sector and you would be overwhelmed by the way that this has developed and built their confidence. So it is difficult to make changes. But there are great teachers in Scotland who are involved in great schools with great pupils making this happen. And in educational policy, what distinguishes countries that do really well? Countries like Finland, for example, that have done very well. Uh, places in North America like Ontario are two things. One is a continuity of education policy. Once you've started on something, you stick with it. What you're seeing south of the border is chop and change, a new initiative every day. You stick with what you're doing. And the second one is exactly what the First Minister said. You rely on excellent teaching. It is good teaching that makes all the difference. And I think what we've got in Scotland is a huge opportunity. We're putting that into operation. It is going to serve us very well indeed. The grammar of French isn't changing, the laws of physics aren't changing, but the way in which we are able to teach, support and nurture our children is changing, and it's changing for the better, and we should all be very proud of it. So on that note, can I say there are two further opportunities to communicate with ministers, there's hospitality 
provided by Remshire Council, thank you, uh, downstairs. And of course, if you didn't get your question covered, you can hand in your sheet in the uh, box downstairs. Can I thank you for your participation and attendance? Many local organisations are well represented, community councils, housing associations, university, airport, chamber of commerce and so on. Can you show your appreciation to the government for coming to Renfrew and engaging so properly? And, I, and I, will let you know, I, will, I will let you know very briefly that the Deputy First Minister said to me when we opened the Town Hall, there were fireworks. Well, there were no fireworks today and I'm really happy about that, so thank you very much. <laughs>